Y'all can be seated. And if you're a student, you're dismissed. If you'd like to be. <laughs> Welcome. I greet you in the name of my Savior. And I'm um, happy you're here with I'm me. I'm happy to be Hooray. here. Hooray. Hello. Hello. Um, Music was terrific. It was wonderful. Beautiful. Yes. And um, today we're going to talk about a couple of things out of uh, the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. And it's the book where the apostle, no, well, I guess he ultimately became an apostle, Luke, Dr. Luke, um, he wrote the book of Acts to help us see what the followers of Jesus did after Jesus ascended to heaven. What did they do next? And it's a pretty amazing story, the book of Acts, if you ever get a chance to read it. And I, uh, or Justin, sent out an email to y'all where I asked you to read Luke chapter 16 um, in preparation for today. I really hope you did. I know some of you did. I know some of you didn't. But um, I was going to get you, Shirley, if you don't mind, to sort of summarize uh, the Apostle Paul is on a, what they call it, they call it a missionary tour. He took three, at least three, maybe four, uh, before he died. But he was on his second one. And he had left Jerusalem and was traveling up in Asia Minor. And then he, uh, through God appearing to him and said, don't go west, uh, don't go east, go west. And truthfully, because God told the Apostle Paul to go west on his journey instead of east, you and I are believers today. Don't, don't misunderstand that. That because God in His sovereignty told the Apostle Paul to go west to Greece rather than east toward India, you and I are believers today. I don't know what you do with that information. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with it. But doubt not that's the truth. And Paul went through a bunch of towns and ultimately he wound up in a, a, a major Roman city called Philippi, which is on the eastern side of Greece, what we call Greece today. And it was called Macedonia back there, back then, but it's called Greece today. And uh, so tell them what happened when he got into, Gre uh, into Philippi. So it's action-packed. You probably, you might have read it. And you might, this may be familiar to you. But just in a real quick recap, um, he meets a, a woman who is a trader of expensive cloth, a merchant of cloth. Her name was Lydia. And um, uh, they were at a, beside a city next to a riverbank, and there were these women that were talking, and Lydia heard them speaking, and they were uh, women who worshipped God. And or they were listening to people worshiping God, and she listened to Paul, who came down to the riverbank. She opened up right. her ears, right. and she listened to what the, Paul said, what the the Word of God said to God's message. And as she listened, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying and was baptized. One of the first converts, maybe the first in that area. I don't know. Absolutely, she was the first. Yes. And she yes. Uh, asked him to come to her mm -hmm. home and have a dinner, and he did that. First convert in Europe, if you yeah, first convert in Europe was that's, Olivia. That's super yeah, cool. that's yeah. super cool. Um, okay, mm -hmm. and so they, um, mm -hmm. as they were going another day, 
Paul and his companions, name was Silas, Paul and Silas encountered a demon-possessed woman who could tell people's fortunes, right? She could tell fortunes, and so they saw her, and she was tormenting them a little bit, maybe a whole lot. These men um, have come, and, and, and she was maybe mocking them, also hollering out, they can tell you how to be saved. She was causing mm-hmm. a commotion around them. And this went on day after day until Paul got exasperated. I love that. He just finally got sick of that this torment from this woman. And so he just sit, turned to her and commanded the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the demon to leave her. And, of course, the demon did. Left her. We Wait a minute. Hold on one second. Did I tell it wrong? No, no. You, I think you told it right. Good. I, um, I, was kind of reading I just it right want to make here. sure because in the movies that sometimes I'll watch, it seems like when there's a demon inside of somebody and there's a priest or a preacher or somebody and they get a big, huge jumbo goliath cross and anointing oil and a and a spike and a garlic maybe or they get all kind of stuff and they have this big confrontation and she's growling and yelling and fire's coming out and things and the 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 good guy is commanding and denouncing and all that and there's this huge battle and you're not even sure which way it's going to go right that's sort of what it seemed like there right Paul well, if, wasn't if, sure how this was going to go yeah, and that's what the word instantly means yeah yeah, then, I mean, yeah. well i just i just I got confused because all the at all almost always in hollywood they'll tell you that it's going to be a big battle and you're not sure how it's going to go but it seems like paul just said i can i'm tired you in of the this name of get Jesus your rear end out of here and he obeyed instantly hmm doesn't seem like a power encounter as much as just a little dog running off when a big, huge man says, get gone. Right? Seems that, but anyway, I, maybe I'm a little confused on that. I just wondered. This is a sermon for another day, but yeah. the book of Acts says <laughs> that we empower that, we have that same power in us. That's exactly right. Um. Mm-hmm. The problem with this was that she was employed by men who she was making a lot of money for. And so her ability to foretell the future and tell people's futures was connected with this demon. And so when the demon left, she could no longer do that. And the guys that she worked for, the men that, she, that employed her, were mad because they lost their employment. They lost some money. And so they come to Paul and Silas. I love this, this little bit right here. Um, the whole city's in an uproar, and they shouted to the city's officials, they're teaching customs that are illegal for us to Romans to practice, and a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. I'm just enamored of how quickly a couple of angry people can turn into a mob. All you have to do is read the Bible, look at the news. It's just, it's, that part of humanity, that part of being human is amazing to me. And just like that, everybody turned. And they got them, and they stripped them, and beat them with wooden rods. Just beat them, beat them, beat them, and threw them in jail. Significant that it wasn't that they beat them with whips. When, you, when Roman officials beat you with whips, it was to make you bleed. When they beat you with rods, it was to break your bones. They wanted to break your back, break your ribs, break your shoulder bones. It was to break your bones. It's far more serious um, anyway, go ahead. Excuse me. Well, that, that's that's a terrible point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they threw him in jail, and I think this is where Larry's going to the sermon's going to land today. Jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet into the stocks, and they're all chained up, and, and everything is is terrible. 
What did they do? Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That is what they did. In their suffering, in their bondage, in their, you can fill in the blank, whatever word you like, whatever noun you like there, what they were doing was singing hymns and praising God. So much so that suddenly God sent a massive earthquake, shook the place down, all the prisoners were set free. An earthquake such that undid locks and people were unbound and set free. You, you, you left one little thing out there that's sort of important. What I leave out. When they were singing and praying, what were the prisoners doing before the earthquake came? Listening. They were listening. They were listening to how these two Jesus followers were responding to suffering, to unjust treatment, to being unfairly wronged, and to incredible suffering. And it says that all the prisoners were listening. What you don't know, but was very common in that day, was that the jailer was probably living right above. He lived right there on the grounds. And he was listening. We know by the rest of the story that he was listening yeah. too. He, he was, they were listening to the songs of praise and to the prayers unto God. Don't forget okay. those guys had just been beaten to the point of breaking their bones. Okay. Now there's an earthquake. Sorry. Earthquake. All the chains of every prisoner falls off. And the, the jailer who lives above comes down to see what's happened. Everybody is released from their bondage. And he is so afraid that he's gonna, of, of what's going to happen to him that he, he's about to kill himself. All that happens in just this matter of moments. Mm -hmm. And Paul and Silas, Paul says, don't kill yourself, don't kill yourself. We're right here, we haven't gone anywhere. And he runs and gets a light and comes back to check out himself to make sure that what Paul said is true, that nobody had left, all the prisoners were still, still there. You know what he said next? You do, you remember this from Sunday school, don't you? What must I do to be saved? Mm. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and everyone in your household. And they all did. He took them into their home and gave them a meal and the entire household rejoiced because they believed in God. I think your sermon is about what happens during and after mm. suffering. I find it so ironic. Can you imagine anyone in the in Congress that was a Democrat hollering out to President Trump or any of his heppers, uh, don't kill yourself, don't kill yourself. President Trump's about to kill himself. And all the people on the other side of the aisle, can you imagine what they, you want, you need a knife? You want a gun? I got a rope. Or any of the Republicans hearing Miss Pelosi or any of the other ones that run the dem if they were saying, yeah, I'm about I'm so upset I'm about to kill myself. Can you imagine the Republicans saying, What you you know what they would say? Let me help you. And yet in this story, the very one that was responsible for beating Paul and Silas unmercifully. What does Paul say in this moment of distress and terror and agony? He sees the man's about to kill himself. Don't, don't harm yourself. 
Don't harm you. How? What a contrast. What a contrast of somebody that is filled with the presence of God. He sees his enemy in a moment of utter terror and distress about to kill himself. And the, a man, a person that is filled with the presence of God, his response is not, good, hope you die. He says, no, don't do that. Don't harm yourself. Do you see what a... You see. Do you see how far we've all... I, I should speak for myself. I have come from that response. Yes. Yes. From that initial response. I hope you heard what Shirley said. What a, an amazing story that Paul and Silas helped this poor, enslaved, demon-possessed girl that's being manipulated and abused and used for money to, to tell fortunes. And they rescue her from this life of horrible, horrible darkness and terror. And they're rewarded by beaten. It says they were seized, dragged, attacked, stripped, beaten, and flogged. And their response to all of that is to sit in prison all night long singing songs of praise and thanksgiving to God and talking to Him. So much so that the other prisoners and the jailer are all listening. What's, the, what's this deal about? What's going on here? There's no whining. There's no pity party. There's no threats. There's no, we're going to mobilize and march. We're going to write our congressman. We're going to overthrow. We're going to retaliate. We're going to get this thing back under control and get it the way it ought. Mm -mm. No. Not at all. So much so that the Bible says that the others were listening. And when the earthquake happened, and those prisoners had an opportunity to get away, they chose to stand by somebody that had something that they didn't have, rather than run away and go back to the people who had exactly what they had, that is a remarkable which point. was Jack. They had nothing, and if they ran away, they were going right back to the same people that also had nothing. And they chose prison with somebody that had something that was a true treasure, rather than running away and having freedom, but nothing. Prison with something, according to these men, was better than freedom with nothing. So much so that the jailer, first thing he does, this all's happening, it's unbelievable, it's unimaginable, it's unheard of, and the, he runs to Paul. You've got something I need, what must I do to be saved? Hey, let's talk about Genesis 1 and 2. 
Let's talk about speaking in tongues or whether we ought to drink or not drink or dance or not dance or how we ought to vote or what's your view on transgender stuff or on uh, uh, whatever, whatever it would be. Let's have a big theological... No. You've got something I don't have. Please tell me how to get that. Something that would make somebody respond to suffering the way you are. I've never seen anything like that. And I want it. Do you see do you see the why did these people Lydia, the demon-possessed girl, the jailer and his family, and the prisoners. Why did they respond the way they did? Why did they ultimately experience a life transformation and, 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 and experience eternal life. Why, why did that happen? I can tell you one. There, there's so much in here that I would love to talk about. But just for the sake of time, we're going to focus on one simple thing. I want to suggest to you that the reason that Lydia and the demon-possessed girl and the jailer and his family and the prisoners all experienced eternal life was because Paul and Silas understood that grace flows from God to people through suffering. Let me say it one more time. Paul and Silas understood that grace, love, joy, light, truth, salvation, forgiveness. It's all grace, right? It's all just little different faucets coming out of the the big hydrant of grace. Grace, grandparents. Grace, mom and dad. Grace, brothers and sisters. Grace, fellow students and co-workers and neighbors. Grace flows from God to people who need grace through suffering. And because Paul and Silas were willing to experience suffering, number one, they were willing to enter into the suffering of others. If it had been me, I'm just telling you the truth. Number one, Sunday morning, I'm, I'm not going to go down to the river, hang out with a bunch of women. I mean, I'm not going to do that. But Paul felt compelled to go down to where people were trying to find God. David sort of sounds like Calvary Rescue Mission. Compelled to go somewhere where people are trying to find God. Jerry sort of seemed like uh, the pure boys. Compelled to go and minister to people who are trying to find God. There's a demon-possessed girl. No telling what that looked like. Don't, Don't sugarcoat that. 
She was, have you ever seen a, a, a demon-possessed movie? And what demon-possessed people look like? I would have gone in the other direction. I'd have gotten as far away from that as I could have. Paul was willing to go where there was suffering and get involved. Not only was he willing to get involved in suffering, the suffering of others, he was willing to suffer himself. He understood that grace flows from God to those who need grace primarily through suffering. We know, well, Larry, how do you know that? Well, isn't that exactly, isn't that the story of Jesus? Isn't that the story of Jesus? Salvation came to the world through the willingness of God's Son to suffer on our behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Paul says in Colossians 1, You were separated from God, and you were the enemies of God. But God reconciled you to Himself through the suffering of Christ. Peter says in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us safely home to God. I was doing a little study not too long ago about in Isaiah. Crazy. Isaiah is a crazy book. Uh, it's, it's probably the most, other than Genesis, Isaiah is probably the most significant, most important book in the Old Testament. Um, it's a hard book. It's a, it's a big, ominous, mountain range book. But one of the things that you discover if you read it carefully is this. Isaiah chapters 1 through 43. They say a lot of different things. But one of the major messages of the, that first two-thirds of the book is this. O people of God, you're in a desperate situation. But I know, I see, I'm aware, and I am on it. I'm involved in it. I'm fixing it. And then God says this. I'm going to send somebody one day that is going to address your injustice, your poverty, your suffering, the wrong that you've experienced, the oppression that you've been, uh, that you've endured. I, I see it, and I'm going to send somebody one day this mighty, glorious person that is unlike anyone else, and he is going to address and correct and restore. That which is wrong in the world. But when? How? Where? What will he look like? And you would think what God's about to say is, Oh, he's going to have on armor and have a shield and a sword and a spear. And he's going he's gonna to mobilize. That's not what Isaiah says. 
you'll know who this person is by his willingness to suffer. And you get into chapters 50, 51, 52, and 53 where, where Isaiah talks about the suffering servant. This one that's going to let people rip his beard out and shove a crown of thorns on his head and beat him on the back and ultimately kill him. That God's going to address the suffering of the world, the problems of the world, by sending someone into the world who is willing to suffer on their behalf. And guess what, folks? Jesus comes. And Jesus does that very thing. Is He the Messiah? How do we know Jesus is the Messiah? Because the one who could do anything He wanted, including stopping the suffering in His own life, willingly didn't stop it. And rather than responding to His injustice and His wrong and His suffering and His attacks and His all that, Rather than responding in anger or power or pity or uh, uh, vindictiveness, if that's even a word, but you know what I'm saying, he responds by letting a bunch of thugs arrest him, beat him, and nail him to a cross to deal with the suffering of the world. He suffered, he willingly suffered, so that God's grace could be poured out on mankind. And one of the things that Jesus said, Dirk, and Doug, and Dale, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. The calling that God placed upon His Son is the exact same calling that Jesus places upon us. Then all of a sudden, that verse in Matthew chapter 10 makes sense. Jesus says to His disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Do you know what happens to sheep that are sent out among wolves? They get slaughtered. Oh, but we're supposed to be these powerful, mighty, victorious people that walk in victory and everything we touch turns to gold. Every relationship we're in is great. Our jobs are great. Our health is great. Our families are great. Our, we're making our world great. Isn't that, isn't that what God's plan is for our life right now? Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And you know what happens to sheep who are sent out into a pack of wolves? They suffer greatly. Paul got that. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, I willingly endure any suffering so that people can experience the salvation of Christ. He says in Colossians 1, I joyfully suffer for you. For I'm participating in and completing Christ's suffering in your lives. Folks, God opens people's eyes and hearts to His love and His grace 
in his salvation through our willingness to suffer, enter into their suffering, and letting them see how a person suffers who has God himself living inside them. The thing is, everyone suffers. Yes. We live in a bent place. Yes. It's, it's broken here. It's bent, the poet said. Everyone suffers. Yes. Full stop. So how do people who claim that the Son of God and His Spirit lives in them, how in the world are we different? I wish that every one of you would go out to the Porsche dealership tomorrow and buy you a brand new Porsche. I really do. I wish every one of you would call, uh, was that Dobson, uh, uh, what's it, Hobson Realtor tomorrow okay. and buy the biggest mansion in Shelby County. I really do. I hope that every one of you get an email tomorrow from your boss and it says, I just tripled your salary. I hope every one of you is married to a mate that's Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and uh, uh, the most wonderful person in the world. I hope every one of you is raising kids that are so great that it would make everybody else jealous. But I want to tell you what the Bible suggests. While those things are great, it's not through those victories and blessings that God primarily sends grace. It is through my willingness to enter into the sufferings of others and through my willingness to endure suffering not as a victim, not as an oppressed uh, a person that's going to fight back and demand my rights and make everybody do it the way I want, but by responding to my suffering, whether it's a mean husband, a cantankerous wife. What would you know about that? I wouldn't. Uh, ungrateful, infidel children, the meanest in-laws in, in Shelby County, a terrible boss, a lazy employee. Sickness. Sickness. It's when we let people see, like Paul let the... There was no act. There was no act going on with Paul and uh, Silas. They were responding to terrible suffering the only way they knew how. And that was not by complaining or blaming or demanding pity, but by rejoicing in the fact that God lived inside them and that God was sovereign over their problems and that God ultimately promised them that He would use this for their good and that He would ultimately bring them through it and out of it. I want to close with this. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Sounds sort of like what Paul and Silas were doing. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you know what I take away from that? Those are crazy words. Who believes that kind of trash? That's not true. That's not right. That can't work. Unless what Jesus is saying, when God gets ready to invade your life, when God gets ready to invade your marriage, when God gets married to invade your workplace, when God gets ready to invade your family, when God gets ready to invade your, your nation, your world. He doesn't send tanks and bazookas and bombers. He sends people that are humble and meek and that understand that their calling today is to trust Him Enjoy the blessings that God gives them, but when suffering is required, they face it with courage, they respond to it with thankfulness and joy, and through that response, God pours out His grace. Some of you, you, you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. God save my kids. God save my mate. God save my coworkers. God save my neighbors. Could it be? Could it be that God is at work? I'm not saying trying because God doesn't try anything, but. Could it be that God is at work in these very people's lives waiting for a venue through which grace can be poured? And this story would suggest that one of the most powerful venues through which God can pour His grace out is through the lives of people that are willing to suffer. God doesn't need the talented or the brilliant. He doesn't even need the holy. He sure doesn't need the rich. What God is waiting on is people that will respond to suffering by singing and giving it to God, talking to God about it and singing about it. And other people go, what's that about? I have nothing in my arsenal but like that. Doug, could you tell me about that? Tell me, 
how you can do that? I've been waiting on you to ask. Okay. Anything you want to add, Brent? No. You know, people, yes. Please, <laughs> you know. please, please. Turn, turns out, yes. Please. You know, pe people um, pray for revival, national revival, and these things. And that's, that's a good prayer. That's not a bad prayer. No. We certainly need it. <clears throat> but that list from the Beatitudes is personal, not national. Um, it's one, one, one. It's, and it's paradoxical. Blessed are those who are meek. Peacemakers, can't even remember. Um, there it is. Poor, those who mourn, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst for justice, those who are merciful. I'm planning on going home and running my experience of the last day, dare I do a week, I don't think so, through that, through that sieve and see what I think about how I did. And perhaps my prayer will be for revival. But those who are humble are the ones that inherit the whole world. Yes, they inherit the whole world. But I, I want to add they also change the world. And that's, I want to change the world. I, I, I want to change you. I want to, ch I want to be a change agent in your life. I want to be a change agent in Teddy's life. I want to be a change agent in Turk and Melody's life. And one of the most powerful ways we can do that it's about letting them see how we respond to serious suffering. And if we act just like every other knothead on this planet, what do we have to offer? Okay? Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. What a... What a great reminder to take bread that represents the body of Jesus and wine that represents the blood of Jesus and eat and drink it to physically be confronted with His suffering. Suffering that He did not have to experience. Suffering that he did not have to, he could, in fact he says, do you not think that I could call my dad right now? And he'd send, all he'd need to send is one, but he says he would send legions of angels. But Jesus wouldn't do that. He willingly suffered so that God, so that his father could pour grace through his life into you and me. And, uh, so let's eat and let's drink that which symbolizes and reminds of what the Lord Jesus did for us.